Welcome back to Understanding VC. I'm your host Rahul. Today my guest is Terry Chow. Terry is a partner at Alpha Intelligence Capital, a global VC fund that invests in deep artificial intelligence and machine learning technology-based companies. At AIC, she leads AI investments across regions with a focus on cybersecurity, fintech, and SaaS. And her notable investments include Rita, which was acquired by IBM, SenseTime, which IPO'd in Hong Kong Stock Exchange, and AI Music, which was acquired by Apple. Before joining AIC, Terry spearheaded technology investments at VMS Investment Group, where she deployed over $180 million. Now let's talk to her. Hi, Terry. Thank you so much for joining me today. Hello. Hi, Rahul. Thanks for the invite. I'm really excited to chat more about AI and investments. Yeah, you, so you recently moved to Singapore. But yeah, where did you grow up? Yeah, so uh, I'm born and raised in Hong Kong, and I went abroad to UK for most of my education. And an economist by training, but I pretty much started in private equity very early in my career. And then I, I, I was in ventures. So focused on the AI, um, we launched our fund with a global mandate in Hong Kong, US and Paris. But uh, we have recently decided to move to Singapore for a few reasons, including, you know, my entire, our entire Hong Kong head office. For firstly and foremost, because of the bipolarity between US and China, investment has been a very sensitive area, especially when you invest in deep tech like we do. So it is just a more neutral state for us in Singapore. And secondly, I think um, from a deployment and investment perspective, there are a lot of more interesting machine learning capabilities uh, in the Southeast Asia region, which is more reasonable and in terms of valuation and the applications. So here we are, first women on board on the on board in here in Singapore, and uh, the team shall slowly, gradually join me. Yeah. Okay. So. Growing up, were you always interested in finance, economics? <laughs> Nobody grows up to be interested in those things, right? What well, were your other interests? Yeah, I grew up, I, I think I grew up loving investment because my mom is an investor. And okay. in a way, you know, just properties, you know, just like a Chinese, you know, auntie, like going around town. But she actually is very, you know, smart and she understood the value of investment. I remember I was around 19 years old and she told me, you know, how she got to this particular property and how it started from almost, you know, she, she made a 30 fold in like six years by switching to her different properties. And I, and she just asked me, she said, you know, you went to the best school. I sent you the best places. She said, can you beat me in my return? And I was nice. like, no, <laughs> I don't know. I don't think so. Like, you know, I could see myself making a good, you know, income, going to big jobs, but I don't see myself doing that. And I think that planted a seed in my head. I did not plan on going to investment because of that. And I think in so many ways, you know, that I seen her do all of this growing up has really ingrained it like in my system. So I, I love investment. I love making it like making returns and just seeing things grow. Nice. Nice. You, you've been in Singapore for uh, a couple of months at least now? Actually, six months now, a bit okay. over. And uh, yeah. Yeah. So when you assess the, the state of deep tech in Singapore, uh, yeah, what do you make of it? Yeah. So Singapore, it's a, a very interesting society. And economically, it was, you know, structured in such a way, for example, there's a lot of deep tech capability and semiconductor. It very much started in the 80s. 
And you could see, you know, at the Singapore, you know, government or their related entities has really orchestrated their approach in creating and maintaining that competitiveness. So for me, that is very interesting. And recently, they have also taken an initiative, for example, to tackle like AI or uh, or blockchain innovation. And by when I say that they are orchestrated, meaning that they not only try to build a talent pool and by providing the grants to these, they also move one step further to try to build like an early stage ecosystem around investment in it. But obviously, our fund, you know, Albert Tash's capital is purely focused in AI and deep tech AI. I would say it is still in the early stage in Singapore, very much reminds me probably of Europe five years ago, four or five years ago. But there are, you know, a lot of interesting talent coming out in the entire Southeast Asia region that Singapore is very accessible to. And you see uh, kind of like a more spread out team makeup where maybe there's made up a lot of Indian engineering or product center, while the use cases or GTM to go to market is around different Southeast Asia region. So I find it interesting, but I also hope that, you know, with the launch of AIC here, we can also help propel some of the earlier stages AI startups. Yeah. So uh, could you talk about a little bit more about uh, AIC and your fund strategy? Yes. So yeah, we're Elvert Intelligence Capital. We call ourselves AIC. Some people call us AI Capital, but uh, we are a deep tech focused AI machine learning fund that deploys globally. And our fund one was around 200 million and we just launched a 300 million fund too. And our focus is in the earliest stages, meaning from Series A to Series C. Sometimes we do venture into like maybe a C plus in the earlier or like the D and E, but our sweet spot remains in A to C. And our approach is a bit different because we, our team is made up of what we call AI natives or, you know, AI practitioners. So our founding partner, Antoine, he's a three-time AI entrepreneur and sold three AI companies. And one to, you know, Siri that later became Apple, obviously one to Sybase later became part of Microsoft and most recently Sentient Technologies. And, and the team is split into like half business people like myself from private equity background that, you know, learned about AI. And then it yeah, also comes with AI practitioners, software engineers, uh, and aerospace engineers that turned into like more finance and investment focus. So some one, we've invested 28 companies. We exited seven. We sold four just based on technology, the valuation do not reflect, not based upon, uh, you know, on, on commercial value. Uh, so we sold one to Apple, sold one to IBM. Uh, we sold one to BioNTech in early 23, the largest European AI peer play acquisition ever, uh, and almost 600 million US. So uh, I think the strategy, you know, it's really just reaping its first harvest that we started, you know, 2018 with Fund One, we launched 2022 with Fund Two, and you know, with the recent launch about ChatGPT and also Generative AI, people we really come into the spotlight as you know, with AI technologies and the startups that that are really innovative. So I'm quite excited as well. I'm also excited to move to Singapore and to be more plugged into the scene here. Yeah, so. You mentioned Series A to C, right? So what is uh, a Series A, B, C, 
startup look like in AI in terms of like the progress that they made they've made for you to look at them. Yeah, yeah. So for for startups, really, so we don't do we we don't do seed because we really need the product and we're good at understanding the technology stack and the product. So at least, you know, for most of our series A companies that starts, they would have, you know, probably completed their prototyping or has has a functional product for us to, you know, demo on DD on. And and obviously a tech stack with some of the capability that are proprietary and internally built. I think we have some flexibility as to whether, you know, how your first commercial use case and where you are, depending on the sector that you operate in. But we, we would love to see like at least a first, if not a few customers that we could also allow us to do diligence on the capability of your product and whether it's, it's usability. So, and, and that's that we have invested obviously in a, you know, in a wide range or any, anything from a seed stage company with just maybe seven or eight employees to like a large B round <laughs> that is for in the instance, like InstaDeep, the one we sold to BioNTech, it was yeah. already a hundred million B round. So what I'm trying to, you know, chart here is that AI is an area of rapid growth like from A to B, that's already quite a wide range. So in the way that we define it, you know, in the earliest stages is that you're still in the early stage of exploring, you know, maybe you found your first use case for your technologies, but there maybe there could be two or three more that you could verticalize on. So it, it's, it's, it's a wide range in terms of fundraising size and valuation, but I believe the where the product and technology stands, it's what differentiate in an early stage in the context of, you know, a deep tech fund like us. Yeah. And in terms of deals, where are you seeing these deals from, a good deals from, especially in Asia? Yeah. So we normally are because of our mandate. So I we do 40% US, 30% Europe, 20% Israel, and 10% APAC. That was on one. And, and, and that very much, because we're ex-China, that very much represent where we see, you know, the represent the top AI talents and, and technologies, which is, you know, U.S. by far the leader in terms of uh, technology, algorithmic approaches, and also talent, and, and shortly actually followed by China. But obviously our fund is ex-China, so it's not part of the mix. And then Europe, Israel. So we hope to see a change of that in terms of the Southeast Asia deployment. Uh, so Fund 2 is still a really a rather large fund uh, for, in the early stage at 300. So we target to deploy anything between 10% to 15% in Southeast Asia region. And and if you ask me what interesting startups I've seen in the region, I think it has really changed a lot. Two years ago, we would have seen interesting startups, but probably not differentiate it in their in their technology approach and I'm, I'm seeing that change in the last six months that I spent here I've seen local Singapore startups at the advertising tech space actually with a very scalable cookie free approach uh, where they can really merge intent with you know real-time service traffic from the world base here I have seen other cybersecurity startups that use NLP natural language processing to crawl the dark web based here also, but there more more often than not, I would have seen a company with a headquarter here and engineering team sometimes in, in India, sometimes even in Vietnam, which I find very refreshing. That has interesting approach. So I, to name a few like computer vision based, for example, what what you call no code CV platform, for example. 
those are starting to become interesting. So uh, why do you think uh, US has the, the best talent and also the best approach and Asia is lagging behind? It is, is it because the lack of research pending so far or? Yeah, so generally, you know, they, they, whether it is from an academia perspective, so both U.S. It's re, uh, U.S. is most well structured in a way to to enable a lot of researchers, not just in the AI space, but in the AI space, they, they have been pioneering this space since uh, you know the '80s and '90s, right? The, you would have seen the first AI lab in in, in the U.S. in the late '80s, even in, in smaller town universities. So maybe they were not called AI or machine learning at the time, but they were devoted into the research of whether it was newer networks or other graphy race approach. So with that talent pool and the academia, they could really, you know, yeah, you can just imagine that the the next generations that they could, they could create within only university is very interesting. But secondarily, I think, you know, aside from government grants and stuff, they have a lot of connectivity and ecosystem that are built around university, except especially the top tier university to take these companies to spin out. And if I compare US to the UK, for example, known to be one of the strictest and least beneficial to to founders when it comes to the IP licensing spinoffs, like US has really already had a very structured approach where you could buy back some license and structure all these deals in a profitable and, and in a way that incentivizes startup founders. So that's something that they've done really good. And with the history of them just starting much earlier. And if you can see in the last five years, there is just so much dry powder from the early stage venture scene that has gone into these early stage startups. It is almost a no surprise that, you know, they, they will remain one of the most talented pool. And, and it is, the, you know, kind of like the, the baby card for most of the most innovative like AI approach. Whether obviously in the UK they're also interesting one because DeepMind, you know, it is a UK based company. But if I compare this to to Southeast Asia in Singapore, I feel like there is also a good, you know, government accessibility and grant. Generally I I, I don't know, I, I'm I'm curious of why as well that we see a lot of academic research done, but less so, you know, in a spin-off or in a commercialized kind of manner. So it could be it could be the ecosystem is still in its early stages of building, and maybe that that will really change in the next few years as the region pour more resources into AI. Yeah. So I re- read uh, a quote from your website. I think a disruptive technology approach that allows them to grow cheaper, quicker, and much more effectively than their competitors. So this is something that you look for in companies, right? So how do you assess this? No. Just before that, no, I had another thought. So I was thinking like it, a technology needs like a certain number of years, maybe 30 years of research before a venture capitalist or even, you know, people can turn this something into a business use case, right? So in terms of that, like what are the technologies uh, that has achieved that? I, I guess AI is already there and biotech. Yes. So... It doesn't take all the technology 30 years to become commercializable. I, I think it is only in the narrow context of AI, you know, it's a methodology. Actually, it's, you know, the, 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 it's 70 years old. <laughs> it's, it's, it was just not, you know, taken to popularity because 
firstly, there was no data, very limited data. You know, as you can imagine, there was no popularity of, you know, the, the internet, where, which is really the natural ground for creating new data. And there was no, certainly no computing power. So these three elements are, you know, what AI feeds are. And, and the approach was there, you know, you know, birthed out of mathematic and statistical approach. And now they can only really come together, have ensemble of different te AI technology or methodology together to make a use case viable and interesting. But, you know, in terms of, does it take 30 years for, for a technology to be, to be successful? I, I highly contest that, no. Like Google is the simplest technology, it's a search algorithm, right? And it was taken into popularity in, in just a few years. You know, it, same thing with e-commerce, right? It is also, it is not a, a, a very difficult technology. There's also some, you know, search algorithm involved, but it was so taken in, into popularity because the market is ready for it, right? And in terms of AI, it, it also needed an infrastructure where, you know, data were flowing freely. So in the first generation, obviously, who propelled that software? And, and after software came applications. And in between software and application, there's a huge layer of cloud infrastructure, data infrastructure that are being yeah. built. So with these traffic and the structure, I think the time, we don't, the time has you know, become quite obvious for AI. Yeah. And in terms of different technologies, I think a lot of different technologies will pre-fail. And, and I think the timing to market really is just dependent on both how, how disruptive you are and whether it is the right time to disrupt a certain market. Yeah. And yeah, assessment of, of a particular approach. So uh, that allows them to grow cheaper, quicker, and much more effectively than competitors. Like, how do you do this when you see a particular startup or a business? Yeah. So, so I think to sum that up is really, you know, how do you define like a disruptive approach? And that's something that you, if, if you're playing in the field of AI like we do, which is why we have a global mandate as well, so that we can really compare and triangulate the same use case, same technology, but across different regions to understand which one is one, computationally cheaper, or two, you know, has built a very elegant or, or a scalable way, algorithmic way tools to deploy. So, this will define your operating leverage against your competitors, and it will also define, you know, the time that you require against your competitor to learn a new task, to create a use case. An example that I would give maybe is a, in a company called Osaro in, in the U.S. It's a robotic company that does picking and sorting. So they use, obviously, computer vision and reinforcement learning to help the machine mimic and optimize on how to pick like a human. And, and how, how, how can you be disruptive against competitors? Because there are a lot of robotics. So firstly, it's obviously, can you learn quicker when you see, you know, a new fluffy monster that is something that your machine has never seen? And how does their algorithm enable them to learn, you know, instead of in a hundred shots or 10 shots, can you do it in a few shots? Like, so, so that learning time, the lower you can get, the quicker you can win and the cheaper you can win against competitors. That's just one example. So, but generally, as you could see in more like the wider enterprise world, like four years ago, you would have maybe 
you would have seen, like, say, your retail bank, only 20% of your function can be, can be, can be adopted by AI technology or startups. Today, more than 80 or 85% of the function is already AI assisted and can bring your costs much lower. So, so from both the enterprise side and the startup side, we, we've seen that taking margins to say in a traditional drug discovery kind of tooling company with a 50% gross margins, the newer, the newer versions of these, the AI enabled ones like InsertDeep was 71% in margins, in gross margins. So that 20% made a difference, right? Versus a five over every yeah. startup. Yeah. And when you say computational efficiency, it is the reason. So it's just like you said, if, if it takes 10 shots to learn, if it takes two to three, th- that is the efficiency that you're talking about or is there any, any other aspect to this? Yeah, so computational efficiency is really important. Um, I, I, you know, the, my favorite example is really right now that you will really feel the difference is in Web3. So because timing and efficiency is everything. So there are a lot of, you know, tools out there that recreate, you know, a 3D model, whether, you know, from one shot, one photo. So your iPhone can do that. Google can do that. But obviously taking it a step further, it's creating better texture for things, you know, that makes me feel more human or just doing a complete 3D reconstruction based on incomplete pictures, right? So, and there has a lot of enterprise application towards that. And that's what we call rendering, you know, rendering a 3D image, rendering a 3D videos. And being able to do that in in your algorithms in an asset light matter would really be so important to winning. So that would be the first thing that we will look at when we look at different Web3 applications, because all at the end of the day, these will be on your mobile phone in your applications. And the computation will not be done by a huge cloud machine somewhere in the AWS cloud or in a server. It will be done in your phone. And there's only, you know, certain limited computational power that you can use. So the lighter you go, the quicker you will win against your competitors. I think that that would be a very good example. Yeah. Yeah. So so, uh, people have been talking about how Apple can win the generative AI in the sense, you know, that they can bring this to the phone with the privacy, the angle that they always do. And if, when that happens, you know, they would just beat out everybody else. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so actually most of, I, I would say most of the tech giants have a generative AI capability in-house within their different AI labs. And, uh, and most funny, I'm sure all of you already know about this, actually Google was the first to launch Transformer in 2017. And um, uh, first called BERT and then now BARD, different versions of them. And they have only taken like a year or two to be completely overtaken by OpenAI. I just, I don't think that it means Google would be incapable, but they've certainly lost their first marketing wall. Uh, and people, you know, tend to lose a little bit of faith and, you know, people are turning into ChatGTP right now. And the future of, you know, Google search will likely be in the format of ChatGTP. It will be conversational. I talk to my watch, I talk to my headphone. And then they conversationally or, or selectively in images show me things. So they will still be capable. It, right now, it's all the media attention of who, who does what first. Actually, probably art is very capable to do what OpenAI to achieve. And maybe in 18 months, they will catch up. But the, the most exciting things about the current AI, AI wall is that if you just see how large the clusters of parameters are for each like GPT 3.5 to its whole version, 
every year there will be, you know, you, you, you can't be outcompeted by someone else. So staying relevant for all the tech giants is super important to continue acquiring AI capability to stay relevant. Because the, yeah. aside from web and application, AI will define the next kind of trillion dollar company and who wins that wall. Like whether it's Apple, Google, all of them stay afloat. So very interesting time. Yeah, so this is another thing that you spoke about next trillion dollar company. So when it comes to AI, I feel that, you know, all the tech existing tech giants are well positioned to capture this opportunity, right? So is there an opportunity for an external company to come, even for OpenAI, I think for them to really like stay in the game, they have to take that investment from Microsoft, right? Yes. So actually, yeah, OpenAI is one of the few examples. I, I don't see it now, given the, the structure of the deal that they have taken on. You know, obviously, there's a lot of there's, there's pros and cons of being integrated into the Microsoft realm. Obviously, you have all the capability, whether it is a GitHub uh, that you could really launch or AI co-pilot with the wealth of the GitHub kind of coding community and the data within it. At the same time, they also, you know, have to profit share majority of their earnings to Microsoft as a part of their acquisition, sorry, the 10 billion investment requirement. So I think today Microsoft remains still the most, in near term, the most likely acquirer to take on that company. And it would mean it would be huge if that happens because essentially, but at the same time, it would also limit a lot of the innovation that can happen around open AI that, you know, it's already beginning to happen because they, they, they can also set up ecosystem around them where they see early stage company that use some of their capabilities. And that's very rich and that would drive further innovation. And essentially open AI was this successful because partially because of its open source mandate and the way that they were able to function as a private private company so so and as to where the next wave of you know trillion dollar company is i think you know the law of the still right now has their biggest window at it because they with the current market cap and everything they are they just have to keep acquiring ai capabilities to stay relevant and stay ahead of their competitors but i think that this will intensify in the next two three years so it's really a good sector for us to operate in because because it would be extremely acquisitive where all the public market sectors slow down. You can see a lot of late stage uh, private equity deals not going to make it to IPO because for every one, so in the last five years, 1,000 uh, unicorns has been made with a billion plus valuation, but only 200, $1 billion plus IPO has happened. So the conversion yes. is five to one in the public market. So when, when you operate, you know, in the software stack, but at the same time, AI will become increasingly an intensified uh, level of acquisitions. So I think it also speaks to the AIC strategy that, you know, we did not mean to invest in companies so that they get acquired, but we constantly see some of our most like dis a disruptive or innovative portfolios get acquisition offered. I think it's also a result of that and that caused us to sold, you know, a few companies to Apple, IBM, and also yeah. Biotech. Yeah. Speaking of Biotech, you know, the InstaDeep. Uh, so could, could you may probably use that as an example to just explain what your due diligence process is when assessing such a company? Um, yes. We, we yeah. already spoke about the, the tech element of it, but there's also another aspect, right? 
like uh, whether this can become large and can get acquired and things like that. Yeah, yeah. So I, we know we have our learnings as well as a, as a deep tech team. So we have four to five tenants, what we call our kind of investment thesis formulation. So obviously technology has always been the first fence. Like if it is not deep tech enough, even our associate analysts were able to to say that this is quite a common technology, we will turn away very quickly in the first or two meetings. But then there come a few elements, obviously, that we have learned to be increasingly important. It's just the team. The team is everything. When you are applying a new technology to a sector, you need someone who is within the team, a domain expert, say in the field of cybersecurity, like you know you were in Raho, then you need a domain expert in cybersecurity who could help you navigate the biggest gaps all the biggest pain points in the industry that needs to be solved. And at the same time, this team also understands how AI can be adapted efficiently or smartly to this sector. And and the third is obviously the commercial element of things is, you know, we, we, we now realize that you could apply AI to pretty much everything, but there are areas that it is more pervasive and areas that it has just a higher value add, like say an example of drug discovery, <laughs> the value add for, for shortening, you know, a drug development is in terms of billions, right? That if you are able to shorten that by six months, 12 months, you make a huge difference. But at the same time, maybe at the context, I know that the mental health is a huge thing, but because of the intervention period to, to is so long, it could take years months maybe years to improve one's mental health and it's really difficult today to quantify you know monetarily or directly like link and to monetary value then in that way even ai can be applied it has a smaller value chain and and we would prioritize as a fund uh, uh, those that has a higher value and lastly is obviously something that we we always look at as it's been, it's been a challenge for us because our founders are very tech a lot of them are AI technologists themselves and we, we look for the ability to fundraise whether we believe this team the strategy and the sector is something that they can continue to raise and stay afloat so uh, with that said uh, these are you know the main four or five key tenants that we look at as a team yeah uh, I, I've never had anyone else say that, you know, the ability to fundraise and stay in the game. That's a very new thing for me to hear. And you talked about the team. So other than domain expertise, uh, what, yeah, like what do you think is the most important trait of, of a founder? I think generally curiosity for a founder and for everyone actually investors as well because yeah. the world changes every day and technology changes every day i find the most i find the most inspiring people to be constantly asking questions and asking the right questions and as founders you know curiosity is so important because as a founder as a leader the captain of your company you must ask yourself the difficult questions before someone asks you like where where your boat or where your yard is charted towards and these are, you know, people will come to you for leaderships uh, as a founder and starter. Your, your investor will come to you for decisions. And you must be the first, you know, who has been so curious or segmented and understood all your problems. And it, even if you don't have the answer, but you're curious about different ways to solve it and you always ask yourself. And, and that's the most important thing for a founder. And for investors, I always remind myself, you know, be curious, not judgmental, because 
it's easier for us to be judgmental, to have a judgment bias because, you know, I, I already learned about this sector. I already know about this. It's probably very hard, you know, already very, very competitive and a plateau for a certain sector, let's say computer vision, because, you know, computer vision is every, everywhere today. But if I'm not curious to just ask the right question, if, if I don't remove that bias, maybe I, I don't learn a thing or two in that one hour and maybe I'll be pleasantly surprised by both the founder or technology. So it's a constant reminder to do that, I think, for everyone. Yeah. Yeah. Curiosity, to me personally, I feel that it is a very clear sign of intelligence of a person. This is something that I've noticed. And, and curiosity and asking the right questions, that is not always... I don't see a lot of founders do that really well, uh, including myself. And uh, sometimes it's because, you know, <laughs> when you ask the right questions that you might get really bad answers, which you don't want to really get. So th there is maybe some sort of psychological aspects because th there are people who built it because of the sake of building things and not actually solving problems. D do you notice that? Or... For the sake of just building things and not solving problems? Yeah, as in like, you know, there are people who build stuff, but is this actually solving the problem? That That is the kind of question that you want to ask, right? And people stop short of asking that questions because they are, they like building stuff. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So you build that stuff that, you know, that if you don't continue asking questions, whether it is to, to your customers, you know, you should be building products and stuff just for customers. If you don't ask yourself questions, you know, about your investor, whether it sets a certain mandate, whether the market is ready for this, and you're essentially building something for the future and you're not that to cap to capture it. So obviously we've we've seen a lot of people who kind of build things in their kind of in their own semi vacuum and, and we would also try to advise them, but it, we would try not to invest in these founders that we don't feel like we can really communicate with them. And, you know, it, it's something that we've we've learned along the way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In, ter in terms of like the AI in health tech, right? So there are dis different aspects to it. We just talked about the drug discovery uh, and development and how it speeds, uh, like AI can speed up things. But if you uh, were to take an example of, let's say, diagnostics set of things, where AI helps you with the earlier, faster diagnosis. Definitely AI is a better doctor than a human doctor, given the data that we have. So what does it mean for like a human being as a patient? And also uh, as a business, what is a business model? And what are the challenges for a diagnostics AI business? Yes. Now? Yeah. So you, you, I think telehealth is already ubiquitous a sector. So some of them, I think, would have adopted some very basic decision tree, which is a very quite quite simple machine learning methodologies. But it's really hard for a machine to move to, say, a diagnostic stage to understand, you know, how how you likely likelihood of of your sickness or specifically which type of based on your symptoms. But obviously, we also, you know, our team has led a co investment in, in a company called KHEL in the U.S. They were able to do that because. They have 20 years of diagnostic and EHL, EHR, electronic health records from, from Israel, from the Maccabi labs. And they were able to build like a, a huge probabilistic model based on that. But still, AI today, unless you got like full FDA approval, the last mile has to be done by a doctor because they can only suggest a diagnostic, but they cannot 
diagnose you today without, you know, with the right FDA approval. It's very hard to prove today and, and get that approval. But in general, as a like everyday day to day patient, I am I'm sure AI has already infiltrated in a lot of way in your journey to the hospital in ways that you may not have felt it. So so I think, you know, we talked about EHL is starting to, you know, be more complete in certain countries. I, I actually see a lot of efforts in here in Southeast Asia and Singapore as well as being a smaller country that would be, you know, an area that could be easily easily managed. But generally, um, there are a lot of AI technologies that are being integrated into the workflows of hospitals or between uh, or just having different departments talk to each other. And I think that would be the future of, you know, your, your hospital journey can be really, really optimized in terms of time that you would, you know, you would, you would, you would go into the hospital. And before that, maybe you can just take a few photos, whether you have a dental problem, take some photos of your teeth, take some photos of certain things. They would try to like lower the hospital bed days. Like for those who do not need <laughs> care, do not come to the hospital or the ER, right? So you have a pre-diagnostic that sh- that really helps you segregate critical and non-critical patients. And, 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 and I think in the future, care can also be more mobile. There will be at-home care that for, the, for the less critical cases. Doctors and nurses can come to you. And for diabetes patients, you would have an app on your phone that intervenes you know, reminds you, tracks your all your health data on your watch to make sure that you're in check, right? And then when you come to like the critical cases where you need like MRI, radiology, pathology, you if you're you know you're just like a rock hole, you're in your thirties, you're you're not probably not that critical. You're you you don't understand why you had to wait three days for an MRI scan. That's because you're non critical. The AI have triaged based on the scans or other things the more critical patients so that you know they reduce death rate. For, for similar matters that are being done at the works, probably that you don't feel in the front face of a consumer journey, but I think you will begin to see a lot of it as, as the workflow and then and the popularity of telehealth together with some AI-assisted technologies in, in play. Yeah. Okay. I mean, this is all great uh, for from a patient perspective, but for a business perspective, right, incentives might not be aligned well, right? So... For example, if you take late-stage kidney diseases or something, some of the profitable business in that space is those businesses that does the dialysis and things like that. So if we do an early diagnosis and it does a lot of preventive things, then a lot of businesses go out of business. Uh, but, but that's a good problem, right? In terms of healthcare, that you reduce, <laughs> you yes, reduce yes. fatality. But in most countries, especially in developed country, you will see medical resources a constraint, right? That you need more than actually is there supplied yeah. for. So in in a way, that's where AI can can really help. Uh, but but you know, in every AI war or in adaptation of every new technologies or new business model, even. There, there will be winners and and also people who don't benefit from it. And that is just the natural progression of most uh, technologies and applications. Yeah, but, but uh, there will be like a pushback, right? Because, you know, I've heard a lot of doctors really don't care. Uh, they, they really don't care when it comes to like early diagnosis and keeping the patient healthy. They would rather have a late stage and then, you know, make more money. It's something that I've heard. Yeah. So so how do you fight things like that? And then, yeah. Yeah, so I've seen two camps of how people tackle that in telehealth. For example, people try to acquire their own doctors, right? Because it's really hard to convert a brick and mortar 
doctors who also essentially, you know, has a different, different, you know, they, they stress differently whether time is important to save or, you know, just to, to, to improve the, the initial outcomes for patient. And generally, inertia to continue doing business the same way that they have done. And, in, you know, that, that they've done for two decades, three decades. So uh, one, one proportion, I think, you know, different sectors will have different response in the telehealth. You either acquire your own doctors, but if this has become increasingly costly, like you can have 10 physicians, 20 physicians, but can you go like beyond that to have like hundreds of doctors in your network and, and being able to make sure that all their time effectively, you know, used for, and how do you distribute them? Because doctors have different specialties, right? So so the the other the other way it also is obviously to work with you know insurance interest. So there's obviously in the healthcare space there's a huge value chain that you could you could you could dissect through. Obviously, insurers would be one of those who would prioritize probably sharing the same goal as startups. You know, less time, less cost, less beds. So yeah. so in a way that that's also another model that a lot of startups has gone to white labeling or creating solutions for these insurance. Yeah. Then, then does this uh, generative AI? Uh, so, you know, just take podcast as this example. A lot of these AI tools have made it 10x cheaper and also made be 10x productive. <laughs> so, w- what are the consequences of this? I keep thinking about this. Are people going to lose jobs? And generally, I think it'll be a lot cheaper to do a lot more things moving forward. And, yes. and th- that feature is very, very near. Yes. Yeah, so unfortunately, it will impact the way, you know, the society or, or how, how labor for workforces function going forward. And I believe that's, you know, some sectors will win, some sectors will benefit, but some sectors will lose from it. So in, in most cases, I think service sector would be the first to be impacted because although, you know, ChatGB is not, you know, semantic today, they are, they, they don't understand the logic behind things, but they are very much capable of carrying the same outcomes today in the service, whether it's concierge, whether it is just, you know, email typewriter, or just creating a lot of productivity tools. And you, you see the launch of AI Copilot, for example, for, for coding. So all the lower level kind of, kind of capability will be overtaken by AI. So say, you know, the non-mission critical, non-time critical portion of things. But there are also multiple sectors that will also win from this at the, you know that you know you as a investor or as a as an everyday investor you could you could bet on it's obviously anything that has to do with data because data data explosion will continue to be fueled and will be needed in the in times of ai so whether it's anything to do with computational power data infrastructure containerization of data and data security and all of these will be a priority in in the in the coming days so, and, you know, if you are, and if you are fearful of, of AI, then how do you lose your job? I think you should really pivot your mind because you should be, everyone, if you think about all the little kids in school right now, I, I have a four-year-old, I have a two-year-old, you know, they're going to cold at some point in their life and they will be the AI natives. They are the, the next generation are all AI natives. So for them or for anyone is that whoever wins in this war is not who does better than the AI, it's who uses AI better. And that will be defining the winners or, you know, the manufacturer of our next generation. And I'm very much envious because I am not, I am not in, in that army and I would love to be one of those. But 
but generally embrace embrace it because you know the wave is coming and, and it's actually you know in the past few months we've seen the ai literacy gone up so so much and i myself you know i've also came from a business background and tried to learn ai obviously i had much more better exposure than the common people but I, if i can learn it anyone can learn yeah yeah i mean i read the two days ago that you know most of the job i think 60% of the job that existed in the 40s or the 50s are no longer there and people and there are more jobs now so it's just that adaptability i think that is a key and also yeah you have to start using it but but then since yesterday there is another news you know why is this negative view on ai i, I don't understand uh, there is like a huge petition to stop <laughs> the development of these generative ai models how does this kill human race i think i think people are fearful of this you know the ai could overtake you know the apocalyptic kind of views of things but i think that generally they're like really just even within the ai kind of so circles there are two views of how do you feel chat gpt is you really really intelligent today right uh, so i think we're still very far from agi and artificial general intelligence at yeah. least that's our view that i think today not cementing it doesn't mean that next year it will not be but today is not it does not understand that the causal relationships for example between the ideas they are charting or the underlying concept the semantics of things but so then that makes it very far from achieving artificial general intelligence obviously there are ways obviously there are tools that other ai capability get overlaid on top of chatgpt to help you understand why or help them audit why you select a certain a text or you know the temperature or the hyperparameters between things to make it more not black box and understandable but still today it is probably very unlikely to be able to make a decision or high level high value decision like most of us can do but i understand the fear but just like when you switch from coal to oil people do the same thing and when you switch yeah. i'm sure from oil to the easy world now people will also do the same it's just a natural progression yeah i i i heard somewhere you know people are afraid of electricity first it came out <laughs> <laughs> yes the great example right there yeah thank you so much again for doing this jerry yes thank you rahul for for arranging this i really enjoy like sharing more with you particularly in Southeast Asia with all of you.